You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. At this time, our children up through second grade, you can be dismissed to Kids Cove in the back, and our Kids Cove team will be waiting on you back there. Older children and everyone else in the room, grab your Bible, and let's go to the book of Exodus together. Exodus. This morning, we're looking at chapters 11 and 12. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one, and you can um, grab a Bible on your way out. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand if you are willing and able. As we look at the beginning of our text this morning, I want to read Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 to 7. Now, when we stand, and we do this every week, but I want to remind you, we stand because this book is unlike all other books. You don't stand when you read other books. We stand for this one to remind us this is God's word. This is truth. Listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Exodus 11, verses 4 to 7. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not even a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For quite a while now, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. This is a journey story. The word Exodus, the Greek word Exodus means departure. This is a story of movement the movement of God's people from Egypt to Mount Sinai and the movement of God himself who comes to dwell among his people. We've reached that part of the story where God's judgment falls upon Egypt. His judgment falls. We started last week looking at what is commonly referred to as the ten plagues, but we learned last week that that's not really the best way to talk about this because not all of these strange happenings have to do with disease. It's better to understand these as the ten strikes of the divine hand against the evil in Egypt. Last week we looked at the first nine, and we looked at this first in Exodus 7. God says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. These ten strikes, the intention, the purpose is so that people will know. See, there are two ways to know the one true God. The first is to know his mercy and salvation. The second is to know his wrath and judgment. 
But in the end, everyone will know one way or another that Yahweh is the one true God. His judgment falls on Pharaoh, on Egypt. And in chapter 7 to 10, we see these first nine strikes just very quickly by way of review this morning or if you weren't here to set the context for where we're going today with the 10th strike. With the first strike, it's really just a warning, an ominous sign, blood. The water of the Nile has turned to blood. If ever there was an ominous sign, surely that was it. But with each of these strikes, we see the same basic pattern. God strikes Egypt in judgment. He shields his people, and Pharaoh remains stubborn. He remains resolved in his hard-heartedness, resolved in his rebellion. And so with the second, third, and fourth strike, God sends a variety of nuisances This is irritation, exasperation, but not yet true affliction. God is patient even with the tyrant. But still, Pharaoh is resolved in his rebellion. And so with the fifth through the ninth strikes, God brings the pain of loss to Egypt, the loss of economic security, the loss of physical health. And then with the ninth strike, where we concluded last week, darkness falls on the land for three days. It's another sign, another warning. To see light, to see the light of day is to have life. Darkness falls on Pharaoh. Darkness falls on all of Egypt. Death is coming. Its shadow arrives first. With the 10th strike in our text today, Death comes to Egypt, and God provides the way of salvation for his people. He provides both the way of salvation for his people and the multi-sensory way of remembering his mighty act of deliverance from generation to generation. I want us to zoom in on three things in this climactic scene in the book of Exodus. First, the destroyer who slays Egypt, bringing God's righteous judgment on evil. Second, the lamb who is slain, showing us the way of salvation. And third, the feast, the feast that is to be shared, preserving the memory of God's mighty act of deliverance. So first, the destroyer. In chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, some of the verses we just read, let's look at them again. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. God brings unparalleled suffering to Egypt. Unparalleled suffering. A great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been and never will be again. No one will escape this judgment. No Egyptian household will escape. God's judgment will fall on the upper class and the lower class, on the kings and the slaves. See, it doesn't matter if you're the type of 
prominent and powerful person who has always been able to skirt the earthly judgment, all your resources, all your connections, they mean nothing when God's hand of judgment falls. Nothing. The Pharaoh will feel it. The slave girl will feel it. They will feel the darkness. Later in chapter 12, we're told that God will send the destroyer to Egypt. Now, who or what is this destroyer? We can't know for certain. Do you remember the scene back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is on the mountain with God? And we're told on the one hand that the angel of the Lord is what Moses saw in the burning bush. But then on the other hand, when the voice comes from the bush, we're told it's the voice of God himself. So which is it? We're not really sure. Something similarly mysterious happens here in chapters 11 and 12. Because on the one hand, God says, I will go to Egypt in judgment. But then he also says, he will send the destroyer. So is this God himself moving throughout Egypt? Or is this an angel of the Lord that he sends to Egypt? Either way, either way, it is the wrath of God, his judgment upon evil. The target, we're told very clearly, the target is every firstborn in the land of Egypt. The destroyer at midnight hits his mark. He enters every home in Egypt, and the firstborn in every family dies. The fact that they found the children dead in the middle of the night suggests that they became violently ill. Everyone in the family rises in the middle of the night. Everyone clamors to help, but no one can. And every house in Egypt feels the judgment. Even Pharaoh. Even the king. There are two ways to know the one true God. The first is to know his mercy and salvation. The second, the second is to know his judgment. In the end, even kings, even pharaohs will know that Yahweh is the one true God. Pharaoh had so many opportunities to turn, to repent, to release God's people. So many opportunities. And he remained resolved in his rebellion until now he loses his own son. And now, finally, he brings Moses and Aaron and he releases all the people of Israel, finally. Now, if you hear this part of the story and you find yourself questioning God's judgment, you find yourself wondering, how could God do something like this? You must remember who the Pharaoh was. You must remember who Egypt was. Back at the beginning of the story, in chapter one, Egypt wields its power to try to wipe out all of God's people. 
the Pharaoh issues a decree making every person in Egypt an accomplice in his plan to wipe out all the Hebrew children. Take the boys and throw them in the Nile. Do you remember that part of the story? Don't you see? Here in chapters 11 and 12, God's judgment is talionic, meaning the punishment fits the crime. Egypt went after Israel's children. The destroyer takes Egypt's children. It's talionic judgment. The punishment fits the crime. With this tenth strike, God's judgment becomes most severe. He was patient, but now his judgment has fallen. It's at its most severe here. But that's not the only change we see in the narrative. There's also a change in the way God protects his people. If you think back to the strikes from last week, you'll recall that with the flies and the death of the livestock, for example, the protection of God's people was automatic. There was nothing they had to do. God simply stopped the flies from going to the land of Goshen. God spared their livestock. It was automatic protection, but no more. Now, for the first time in the narrative, God's people, the Israelites, they must actively distinguish themselves from the Egyptians. If they don't, then the judgment will fall on them. At this stage in the story, judgment is a threat not just to Egypt. There's something deeper going on here. We must go back to the very beginning of the Bible to understand it. At the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, at the headwaters of the human race, they were created to live in perfect, intimate fellowship with God, with each other, with all of creation, and to fulfill God's mission in the world. But they rebelled. They said, we will go our own way. They said, we will be our own gods. They were anti-God tyrants. They were rebels. And as a result, all of humanity, we are all sinful and separated from the holy God who made us. In Exodus 11 and 12, God is showing us the way of salvation the way that he will bring sinful humanity back to himself. He's showing us the way. And it all revolves around the lamb. The lamb. That's our second point. The destroyer is followed by the lamb, picking up the story in chapter 12, verses 21 to 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through. He will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is how... God's people will actively distinguish themselves from the Egyptians. Notice three important things about this ritual. First, the people must have faith. They must have faith. 
These instructions that are given from God to Moses and then from Moses to the people, they must be followed in faith. The instructions are given when the people are still in Egypt. They've not yet been delivered. They've not yet been liberated. They must look to God, trusting in him, trusting that he will deliver them by the means he describes here. In the same way, you and I must look to God with faith, trusting that he will deliver us by the means he describes in his word. The people must have faith. Secondly, notice that the lamb must be without blemish. This comes elsewhere in chapter 12, but it's definitely an important point worth highlighting. The spotlessness of the lamb reminds us of our sinfulness. When the judgment of God comes, there's nothing we can do to stop it. We are sinners. We are blemished. We have spots on our lives. The sin oozes out of our hearts and shows up in everything we do. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. The spotless lamb is the only way. The people must have faith. The lamb must be without blemish. Third and finally, the lamb must be killed and the blood applied. It must be killed and the blood applied. It is the only way. If an Israelite family did nothing, then the destroyer would enter their home. If the Israelite family took a live lamb and put it at the door, the destroyer would enter their home. If an Israelite family killed the lamb, but didn't apply the blood to the door, the destroyer would enter the home. There is but one way of salvation here. The lamb must be slain and the blood must be applied. Then and only then does God say, I will see the blood applied to your house and I will pass over. I will not strike you in judgment the way that I am striking Egypt. From our place in history, in salvation history, we know that this was not just God's way of saving his people in this historical moment. It's also showing us the way of salvation. It's pointing us ultimately to Jesus, where the ultimate exodus happens. God's greatest act of deliverance when John the Baptist, in the Gospels, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In the Apostle Paul's writings, he says that Jesus Christ is our Passover Lamb. He has been sacrificed for us. The author of Revelation refers to Jesus as the Lamb who has been ransomed and by his blood has purchased people from every tribe and language and nation. And even Jesus himself, when he gathers his disciples for the Last Supper, as they eat the Passover meal, which we'll talk about in just a moment, Jesus takes the bread, the wine, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. He takes that feast that traditionally remembered this action in Exodus. And Jesus says, now all of this points to me. 
remember me. I am the lamb. I am the Passover lamb. Don't you see? Jesus is the one way of salvation. He is the lamb who has been slain for us. Death is coming. The destroyer, God's judgment, is coming again. But the death of the lamb, the death of the lamb will save you. But just like back then, the blood must be applied. The blood must be applied by faith, which means you must stop making excuses, pretending as if you don't deserve the judgment of the holy God. You do, and so do I. You must stop trying to appease God's wrath by living certain ways, figuratively speaking, putting other things on the door of your house. The blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb will save you. It must be applied by faith. God has done everything for you. Look to Jesus and live and always remember him. Third and finally, the destroyer, the lamb, but there's also a feast here, a feast that we must understand. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, God says, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This day is going to become a holiday. Now, in our country, we have holidays. Oftentimes, a special occasion will be marked by a holiday, right? On Independence Day, we remember the birth of our country. On Veterans Day, we remember those who have protected our country. On Memorial Day, we remember those who have died for our country. We have lots of holidays, as did God's people in the Old Testament. They had holidays or holy days. This will become the first one. The Passover will become their first holy day. It will be a memorial day, God says. Memory, memory is an interesting thing. At the beginning of our days, life is mostly time and very little memory. But then at the end of our days, life is almost all memory, very little time. But why do we remember the things we do? And why do we forget the things we do? Why do we often remember things of little significance and forget things of great importance? It seems like our memories choose us rather than us choosing them. God wants his people to remember this event, to remember the Passover from generation to generation. And so he does two things here. First, he reorganizes Israel's calendar. This will now mark the beginning of their year. Their calendar will be built on their theology to ensure that they never forget it. This now marks a new beginning, their new year. And the second thing he does is he gives them a multi-sensory celebration, a multi-sensory way of remembering this great and mighty act of deliverance. See, as our maker, God knows that when we engage multiple senses, sight, 
smell, taste, we're more likely to remember. And so from this day forward, every year, they will reenact the Passover. They will eat the Passover feast, the meal. They will eat bitter foods that remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. They will eat food that reminds them of the swiftness with which they got out of that land. That's the deal with the unleavened bread that we read about in chapter 12. If you've ever wondered, why is, what's the significance of the unleavened bread? Well, one of the points of significance is we don't have time to make bread like we normally would. We don't have time to let the dough rise because we've got to rise and get the heck out of here because God has set us free. He's liberated us. See, everything about this celebration, it reminds them of God's mighty act of deliverance so that they will never forget. From generation to generation, never forget. It's interesting that throughout this passage, there is so much language about the various generations remembering and the responsibilities of the grandparents and the parents to answer the questions that the children will have long after the Passover has happened. For example, in chapter 12, and this, and when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service, this memorial, this celebration, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this? What's the significance of this? Why is our family doing this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared us. God wants the grandparents, the parents, to be the storytellers in the home. Telling this story above all others the story of redemption. Grandparents, parents, you are the guardians of the gospel in your home. Never forget that. God, as the maker of children, knows that your children will have so many questions. Some of you are feeling that right now, I know, right? So many questions, and that's a good thing. And you, as the parents, as the grandparents, you must have the answers. You must point them again and again to the story of redemption, God's mighty act of deliverance for your family, how he brought you out of evil, how you were spared from the judgment because the lamb, the lamb was slain for you. And that blood has been applied to your home and nothing will ever change that. You're the guardians of the gospel, the storytellers. And that means that you need to have some spiritual practices in your home. Make them multisensory if you can. Your children will remember better that way. Do things like come to our Ash Wednesday service this week as a family. Hear the music. See the ashes. Feel the ashes applied to your forehead. Remember death and remember the gospel. Do things like gather your family around the dinner table 
eat the meal together and thank the Lord for this provision and for all of the good gifts that come from above. Remember the gospel. Perhaps some of you have never really been very good at these spiritual practices. You've not been leading them in your home. Well, you know what? We're still very much at the start of a new year. It's a great time to implement some new practices. Right now, it's not too late to start. Some of you, maybe you've been really excelling in this. You've been prioritizing these spiritual practices. Good. Make sure you continue to do so. Keep them a priority. I've noticed in my years of pastoral ministry that there are two moments in life that many parents tend to drift away from these spiritual practices in the home. Now, of course, there are more than these two, but in my experience, these are two of the most common. So let me just warn you about them in closing. The first moment is when at least one of the parents starts a new job or maybe takes on a big new project at work. The second moment is when one of the children starts a new extracurricular activity. Now, of course, the common denominator here is busyness, a new level of it. None of us can do everything. We must let go of something. And sometimes, consciously or unconsciously, we let go of the spiritual practices. We just drift away. You are the guardians of the gospel. You are the storytellers. This is the way the story of redemption will be remembered from generation to generation. Parents, grandparents, if you're not doing it, who will? Come back. If you've drifted, it's not too late. Come back. Reprioritize things in your home. Remember the good news of the gospel from generation to generation. When you forget, and we'll see this as we move on in the story of Exodus, when these spiritual practices cease, that's when theological amnesia sets in. And we will learn in Exodus that theological amnesia never leads to good things. So remember, from generation to generation, remember. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that there are indeed two ways to know the one true God. And God, we want to know your mercy and salvation. My prayer is that if there is anyone here today who has been striving, trying to earn your favor, figuratively placing something else on the door of their home, that you would convict them this morning, that you would show them in such a powerful way that there is only one way to salvation, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb. He has been slain for us must look to him with faith. It is the only way. For those of us who are your people, God, we so want to pass the gospel down from generation to generation. So help us to keep our priorities in line. 
when we need to let go of something, may it never, never be this story and the practices that draw us back to it again and again, helping us to live in the light of this story, remembering our true identity as your covenant people. May we sacrifice work if it comes to it. May we sacrifice extracurricular activities if it comes to it. But may we never sacrifice this story and our place within it. We are your people. We follow you, Lord. Work in hearts this day. Convict, challenge, encourage, and comfort by the power of your spirit, I pray. Amen.